Let's be turning in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start today in verse 1. We are taking a short little break from our time in Genesis, which we will get back to shortly, to spend some time talking about who we are as a church, the things that we are to understand and value most fundamentally about who we are. The reason we're doing that is because, first and foremost, we need reminders of this. We are prone to forget. We, we are not as, uh, as good at remembering things as we often think. Um, so, we need, we need constant reminders. In addition to that, as uh, most of you know, we've been taking time over the past month, month and a half or so to consider a space um, that we have thought might be good for us as a church, a building. And as you think about big changes for a church like us, or at least potential big changes, it's important for us to, again, ground ourselves in what it is that we are. We don't want to lose sight of of who we are. So today we're going to talk about the identity of the church. Now, I do not mean by that that uh, what we're going to talk about today is what defines us necessarily. What defines us, um, our, our ultimate hope is Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about love and unity today. That, that's not our hope. Our hope is not the fact that we are a unified church. Our, our identity in that sense, if you're talking about hope, is exclusively in Jesus. So, when I have nothing left, it's okay because my identity's in Jesus. So, I want to clarify that. That's not what I'm saying here by this title. What I am saying today by this title is that there are some things which should define us when people think about us, when they identify us. There are some identifying characteristics which should be clear in us. That's what I mean. Last week, we took time in the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, to talk about God's love for us as a church. In fact, I think that that grounds us. It helps us understand where our hope lies. And at the end of that passage, Paul calls the church to glorify God, that in many ways the church is the primary context in in which God is glorified. So last week in verses 14 through 19, we clarified from Paul's writing that the church provides a context in which we know and experience the fullness of the Trinity. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know what it is to rest in the fullness of and the great love of the Trinity, brought to us in Christ, administered by the Spirit, overseen by the Father who Himself is love. Not only this, the church is the primary means through which God is glorified in the world. We will talk more about this in a few moments today, but Paul has clarified in this text that the Ephesian Christians have great privilege. And yet, though they have great privilege, they have great responsibility. So, the privilege that we have to belong to the family of God, the privilege that we have to look forward to our future redemption, the fact that we have passed from death to life, does not give us license to do whatever we want. 
So in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul can say in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. That makes me think of verses 14 through 19 of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul wants the Christians, in fact, he prays for this, to rest in the fullness of God's love. But then as he closes the chapter, he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And he settles that with an amen. Let it be so. This is what we are to care about. This harkens back to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you have the blessing of God bringing us to himself with sovereign grace in chapter 1. And yet in chapter 2, verse 10, it's clear that this calling to God, this belonging that we have in his glorious and gracious gospel does not give us the, the latitude to live however we want. The calling that we have been called with is a calling that calls us to, to live for God with all we've got. As we often say around here, God created us for his glory because of the fall that was marred, but he is redeeming us for his glory so that we might proclaim his greatness. We might reflect through our lives, our lips, our actions, what it is to belong to the family of God, what it is to be brought once again back into the family of God. And so as we worship him with all we've got, we reflect to the watching world how great he is, that he is worthy of our trust, that he is loving. How does the world understand love, real love, if we don't reflect that kind of love? How, how does the world understand God's faithfulness or his truth or his righteousness or his purity or his holiness if it is not reflected in the lives of God's saints? And that is why now in chapter 4, Paul can say in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's Word. Paul says something somewhat similar in Colossians chapter 3. You can flip over a few pages and follow along with me. You'll notice similar thoughts in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 15, what I just read in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. The apostle says, 
Again, in similar terms, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's interesting in Paul's letters that he spends so much time talking about how the believers are to live. So he tells them who they are, and then he tells them how they are to respond. And it's interesting, furthermore, that a lot of that instruction revolves around their relationships. Now, that really shouldn't be that surprising to us, though, because that's the warp and woof of life. That's the fabric of how we live. It's the context in which this stuff gets lived out. Okay, so, so God is love. And because He created me and redeemed me for His glory, I am to reflect that love. But if there's not people to love, and if it's not hard to love, am I, am I really worshiping? How can I demonstrate faithfulness, tenderness, compassion, forgiveness if there aren't people around me? And so, therefore, God made a world which would not be occupied by solitary, independent, isolated figures, but by people that would, would cling to one another. So, just as the, the very foundational nature of the Trinity is, is relational, God made His image bearers to be like that, and He put us together. And the beauty of that is, is all at once, we can, can enjoy the relationship of one another, and yet, there can be a dark side to that because we hurt each other too. And you might think that Christians who know the God who is love, the God who is faithful and kind and forgiving and all those various attributes of the one true God, you would think that, that those of us who have been created in His image and now been restored to His image, you would think that, that we would never get that wrong that we would always be loving, always be faithful, always be quick to forgive, always bear with one another, always think the best, hope the best, endure. But don't you find it to be true, brothers and sisters, that, that it's really hard for us? The church is a beautiful thing, but the church is also a context in which we can really damage each other with our lips with our actions, with our neglect, with our harshness, with our unfulfilled expectations which can lead to bitterness and anger and division. Body language, you think I'm making this up. I've had people come to me before and say, I can't come to your church anymore because um, somebody has bad body language when I'm around them. This is true. This is how we interpret our world. We are, we are intensely relational beings. If you think back all the way to the garden, though I think the foundational root of Adam and Eve's sin was pride, which led to a craving independence, there was also a lack of love. And that had vertical and horizontal dimensions. They failed to love God like they should. 
And then what happened? They didn't, they didn't love each other. Adam did not restrain Eve from, from giving in to Satan's compelling temptation. He didn't love her. She did not love her husband when she gave in. And then God shows up in the garden and, and pronounces curses both upon the serpent and on his image bearers. And one of the very clear things that he says to them is, now you're going to have relational conflict. And that shows up very quickly in chapter 4 of Genesis, right after the account of the fall in chapter 3, because their first two offspring, the one kills the other. You might think it would take time for the image bearers to sort of devolve. Not at all. Because as soon as God's restraining hand, His protective, insulating grace is removed, we are left to ourselves, and guess what happens when image bearers, apart from God's sovereign grace, seeking Him in trust, guess what they'll do to each other? They will destroy each other. So Paul felt this in his heart, and as he planted these churches, he saw it. He saw the difficulty of loving one another faithfully and tenderly and faithfully over time. And so he wrote to them about how they were to live together. So, to outline this sort of simply today, in light of God's rich, loving favor toward us, this is the end of chapter 3, we are to reflect His glory by, first of all, sacrificially pursuing love and unity with one another. So we're taking into to light in our consideration today the context of last week's sermon, verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3, which I think we can summarize by saying, in light of God's rich, loving favor toward us, we are to reflect His glory by, first of all today, verses 1 through 3, sacrificially pursuing love and unity with one another. Is that not what Paul is saying here in these first three verses of chapter 4? Much like in Paul's other letters, Paul clarifies to them who they are. We saw that again at the end of chapter 3 last week. Here's what you have. You have the fullness of the Trinity leveraged on your behalf. You have great love which has been given to you. And that's all great and good, and we're thankful for that. But so what? Now what? And that's why in verse one of chapter four, Paul says, I therefore, in response to all I've said so far, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is one of the four prison letters that Paul wrote. It's interesting that he clarifies where he's at and what he's experiencing. I don't think in any way he's boasting about his trials. He's not trying to make himself seem stronger or more committed to Jesus. He's demonstrating to them that for him, this was worth it. He was willing to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which he had been called. Paul understood that, it, that following Christ would come at great cost, and ultimately, that's what we're saying today. If you're going to pursue God, if you're going to be one of His children, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, it's going to cost you everything. Are, are, are we people of great privilege? Of course, according to 
chapter 1, we've already clarified today that God set us apart to himself before the foundation of the world. I mean, we are children of privilege, not because we've earned it, but just because God decided it would be that way. But as we've already seen, and we clarified this in chapter 2, verse 10, why did God do that? God did that to restore the image bearers, people who formerly lived for themselves, people who formerly loved themselves, people who formerly were divisive and did not live for God's glory. Now he has brought to himself that they might, they might live for his glory. Whereas before they lived for their own, now they are to live for his. This is a high calling. The initiation of this calling, of course, took the death of Christ to bring to pass. And if we value what God has done for us by sacrificing His own Son for us, we will recognize the depth of this calling, the import of this calling, the seriousness of this calling. So all at once, we can rest in the unbreakable favor of the Father, and yet at the same time, we can recognize that, that there is great responsibility upon us. So we rest, but we work. We trust, but we obey. We enjoy, but we strive. And this is the Christian life. Is there a tension between these two things, between trusting and striving, between enjoying and obeying, between resting and enduring? There, there is a tension there. It's difficult for us to maintain that. And yet it is true that though God has blessed us in the beloved, in fact, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says this mysterious thing that we are already seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. That's kind of a mind-boggling statement. There's a sense to which we're already there with Him, and yet at the same time, we're not. We're here. And because we have such propensities toward sinful living, which will not be the case when we're fully with Him, we must recognize these tendencies and live counter to them. So what are some of these tendencies? Well, first of all, like we've already said, the root of the first sin, and I think every sin since that, is pride. Pride is wrapped around every element of your being. Pride infiltrates all that you are. It's hard to see. It's certainly hard to recognize just how deep that goes, but yet it is there. I don't know that it's fully possible to ever escape that this side of eternity. In other words, you will struggle with pride until you're dead. What I find to be true in my life is that layer after layer of the onion gets peeled back. It stinks the same at every layer, but underneath every layer, there's new depths of pride. One of the interesting things about living together in this body of Christ is that, is that we butt up against each other, and you get to see the, the peeling back of each layer of that in each other's lives. It's not pleasant. It's 
kind of stinky. It's hard, and pride brings damage. So what does Paul call them to? He calls them to counterintuitive living. Rather than living for oneself, rather than pursuing one's own prerogatives and perspectives, we are to keep others in mind. We are to live humbly. So one of the first things that Paul says as he describes what this walk is to look like, as he considers the great calling with which we've been called, he says, be humble. And not only this, be gentle. And notice he says that you should, you should do this deeply because he says, with all humility and gentleness. In other words, everything you do should be seasoned by depths of humility and gentleness. That means you've got to strive after this. This is not passive living. Yes, we are children of, children of promise, and yes, we have great privilege, but we have, we have no right to do whatever we want. We have, we have the responsibility to, to peer deeply down into our souls and recognize the sin and muck that is there, and by the power of the Spirit, take not only deep looks at what is within, but to also beg for help that we can live counter to those tendencies. So this is what this looks like. Father, today is Sunday. I am your son. But I am a son that is characterized by pride. I am a son that is characterized by harshness. But you're not harsh. You are not malevolent. And as one who has been called to live for your glory, help me fight my pride. Help me fight harshness. Because today I am going to encounter my wife and my children and my friends. And not for my glory, but for yours. I I want to love them with humility and gentleness. Help me, I pray. That's how you maintain that fight of faith, where you're depending upon the one true God to help you, yet you are engaging. Paul goes on to say we're to do this with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, one of the hardest things about being in a church is it's not just made up of one person. It's made up of a bunch of people. The hardest thing about being in a church is the people. You and me. It's hard to to be patient with people. People take time to change. And sometimes they don't change. At least not in the ways you wish they would. One of the things that I've seen over time in our church is that God breaks us up whenever we get too homogenous. Whenever, Whenever there's too much like with like, people that are too alike, you know what he does is he kind of splits it up. We've seen that in the past. And then what does he do? He brings in people that are dissimilar from one another. We have a church that's very dissimilar in its makeup from people person to person. I heard a pastor say not long ago in regard to marriage, and this is just kind of an analogy, he said, you know, if you don't marry somebody who's a lot like you, your marriage probably won't last. I don't know who he's counseling. He must have like the most amazing church on the planet 
Because I've, I've sat with a lot of you now in various marriage contexts, like premarital counseling or like postmarital counseling or just kind of crisis marriage counseling. We've all kind of been together in this. And you know what I find is that, is that for most of you in your marriages, you guys are nothing alike. Why does God do that? Why does, why does God put, put someone who's dissimilar from another person, why does He put them together? Why does He do that in a church? Because He wants to test what you're really made of. You see, if you're with another person who just slaps you on the back because he or she agrees with everything that you like and do, does your pride really get exposed? Does your harshness get exposed? It's somewhat easy to be patient with somebody who's just like you, but what if you're with somebody who's not like you, who says things that you think are just dumb, who acts in certain ways that you think are crazy, irrational, foolish? No, whenever you're with people who are not like you, you have to bear with them in love. Think about this for a moment. If you think about people that are in this church together, you have lots of dissimilarities from them. But do you realize the gulf between you and another person in this church family is infinitesimal in comparison to the difference between you and God? And yet, yet how does He approach you? Gently? patiently, and He bears with you in love. Isn't it interesting that in our relationships, we hold each other to a higher standard than God holds us to? Now, be careful how you hear that. I do not mean by that that God does not expect us to live for His glory. Absolutely, He does. God expects you to live for His glory and he is disappointed whenever you do not. And yet he's not surprised by your sin, and therefore he treats you gently and patiently, and he bears with you. So God all at once can have high expectations for all of us, and yet while it takes time for us to change and to be changed, he bears with us gently in love. That love, of course, is sealed in Christ because He gave Himself for us. Christ bore the wrath so we don't have to. That's the gospel. So as you consider your brother or sister that irritates you, makes you angry, disappoints you, doesn't change at the rate that you wish they would change, does not say all the things that you wish they would say, Remember that you're worse, and yet God does not cast you off. He loves you. You see, you have to see one another through the lens of the gospel. It has to provide a filter for you. And brothers and sisters, if you are not taking time to drink deeply, consistently, daily, from the fountain of God's rich mercy towards you in Christ, your relationships will constantly be characterized by fragility and brokenness. 
You see, when it really comes down to it, even if you are somewhat of a meek person, you are a bully. When you put a bully with a bully, guess what happens? There's going to be inevitable conflict. But as you consider the character of our great and gracious God, He is anything but that. He's patient, He is kind, and He bears with us in love. And therefore, we can come to one another dealing honestly with our sins, and while at the same time, we can be patient with each other. Does this mean that we never call one another out? Absolutely not. If you're bearing with one another in love, you will tell each other the truth. In fact, the context of next week's sermon, as we come down through some more verses here in Paul's uh, argument about how the body is to live together, he, he says that we are to speak the truth of, with one another in love. So, so, there's the tension again. Paul is not saying here that we never point out sin. Paul is not saying here that we don't help each other fight sin. It just means that as we do it, we've got to do it patiently and kindly and humbly. And I think really the sort of thrust of what he's saying is in verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This means that, that passivity, it has no place in the church. This is an active kind of love. You are to be eager to do this. And notice that this has spiritual components. The Spirit is the one who unites us, and it's characterized by peace. So God in His great wisdom put us together because we need each other. But God in His great wisdom put us together to expose things about us, pride and harshness and selfishness and a great desire to be worshipped. Because ultimately, if you think about it, this might seem a little bit deep today, but I want you to think about it. Whenever you want people around you that are just like you, that'll never create any conflict, guess what you want? You want to be worshipped. If you want people around you who are just like you, what you are fundamentally saying, though these words would never cross your holy lips, you want people to be just like you because you want to be worshipped, because you love yourself. I've said to somebody recently, but it's probably a good time to repeat it, <clears throat> that this is not to be a, a museum for the saints. That's not what a church is to be. We're, we're not to be um, little sort of polished image bearers up on a shelf somewhere that can just show off and impress everybody. A missionary from time gone by named C.T. Studd said that some live to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. Stud said, I would rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. You see, some people want tranquility and peace and everything to be just right, but that's not reality. We want to be the kind of place that welcomes people and in their brokenness, and while we help them heal and while we help them grow and while we help them fight sin, we all the while love them through the process. So, brothers and sisters, this kind of unity characterizes the very foundational nature of God Himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been united in perfect harmony from all of eternity. 
And while we are yet imperfect here in this earth by the grace of Jesus working through us and the power of his spirit, we are to strive toward that as well, actively yet trusting at the same time. So is your life characterized by pride? Well, in all, in all cases, all of us struggle with that. But are you fighting? Are you a gentle person or are you characterized by harshness? Are you fighting? I don't mean each other. Are you fighting your sin? Are you a patient person? If not, are you fighting? Are you characterized by bearing with one another in love? If not, will you fight? Are you eagerly, deliberately, actively seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this church? If not, will you? You see, yes, we have great privilege, but we we have a high calling as well. So in light of God's rich, loving favor toward us, we are to reflect His glory by, first of all, sacrificially pursuing love and unity with one another. We talked about the analogy of marriage today, and Paul actually goes on in chapter 5 to talk about marriage here in this epistle, this letter. But I think it's possible for us to tease this out a bit and illustrate these first three verses. I know that all of you are married today, but most of us are. Most of us can understand this, whether we are married or not. The most intimate of human relationships is the relationship between a man and a wife. It's interesting here in this epistle that Paul clarifies that that's what God intended the church to be. The church is the, the bride of Christ. The, the church has been brought to Christ, and he, he's, he's loving toward her. He's patient with her. He bears with her. So it's not a stretch for us to talk about our marriages by way of analogy. Once you've been married for a while, you realize that, that your pride gets exposed. Once you've been married for a while, you realize your tendency toward harshness, toward lack of patience, the ineffectiveness or the difficulty of bearing with one another, and so forth and so on. And almost all the marriage counseling, discipleship that we do around here, and I'm involved in a good bit of it, there's always some common themes. And perhaps the most common theme of all is that whenever you put two selfish people together, there is relational disharmony. This may sound sort of simple and easy, and I guess perhaps it is, but whenever you're having a conflict with your spouse… And you, and you realize the tension starting to rise, the blood starting to boil, the, the temperature in the room is getting somewhat heated. What if both parties in those cases were to ask themselves, am I being selfish? And do I have enough humility to ask the other person, do you think I'm being selfish? And if so, how can I love you better? So, anytime I'm sitting down with people and helping them through a marriage counseling situation, it becomes pretty clear in almost every single case that you have two selfish people who are unwilling to ask themselves those questions and then to ask each other those questions and then fight against it. And I think, again, by extension, that's the way the church is as well. 
If you see it in the most intimate of your relationships, I think you're going to see it everywhere else as well. So, brothers and sisters, you are selfish, and I am selfish, but we must recognize this and we must engage and fight by faith and live counter to this. Is your life characterized by pursuing the unity of the body? Are you demanding your rights or are you seeking the rights of another? And one of the reasons this is so relevant to us today is, as we're going to talk about this building we've been looking at in a little bit, not everybody's going to get their way. People have different opinions about this. But we live for the collective glory of God, and we live for the collective good of the whole. Can we, even in our disappointments, live together in unity? But it goes far beyond that. The greater issues here are just the relational conflicts which seem inevitable for us. Can we live together in harmony with others around us who are not like us, just like God lives with us because we are not like Him and love them patiently and kindly? The second thing, and we'll end quickly here, verses 4 through 6, not only are we to sacrificially pursue love and unity with one another, we are to humbly and passionately embrace the essential foundations of our faith. It's interesting here in this text, Paul says, watch out for your morals, watch out for your lifestyle, and then coalesce, gather together, agree, unite around truth. He says in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. He means one church and one spirit. He doesn't mean there's only one local assembly. He means there's one universal body of Christ made up of local assemblies. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. This is forward-looking salvation. The one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, referring to Jesus. One faith, that's sort of the foundational nature of the gospel we are We are saved by grace through faith. One baptism, and though Christians differ on how baptism is to be administered, he means that we are united together through water baptism in the life and death of Christ together. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God's the supreme authority. So he calls them to morality He calls them to recognize their sinful tendencies and live counter to them. But that he says, you share these things. And if you share these things, especially in a world that does not believe these things, shouldn't we be united? And I think that's why we can call these first six verses the identity of the church. We are identified by how we act together. We're identified by what we believe. And because, at least by way of total population here on this globe, we're minority, all the more we should stick together and love one another. So there's one true church. There's one Spirit who administers God's grace to us. Whenever you do not live in unity together, what does that say about the church for which Christ died? If you trample on it, if you abuse it, if you seek your own good rather than the good of another and do not understand the foundational nature of a united body made up of dissimilar parts, 
What does that say about the church that Christ died for? He gave himself for her to bring her to himself. They were not like him. They were his enemies. You are not each other's enemies. You are each other's brothers and sisters. So so live that way. There's one spirit who watches over us and, as we've already said, administers God's grace to us, but that spirit binds us together. We've already seen in verse three, that, verse 3 that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see what God has done? He's given us the comforter, the advocate, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, to keep us together. So God is, is in the church universal, but He's in this church local, and He's binding us and holding us together. And whenever you are not in step with that, Paul says in Galatians that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Whenever you're not in step with that, you are disobeying. You are not honoring God. We've been called to a great hope. I've already said to you that, that this hope is forward-looking. This is why Tom and Mary's entire family, especially Justin and Katie today, can say this is not the end. One day we will open our eyes and we will see God and we will have eternal bliss. So we strive together. We we press toward the end. God has not given us only a present salvation, much more than that. There's a future salvation to, to which we look forward to. If it was only a present thing, if we were only made temporarily children of some royal family, we might lose heart. But because this life is so difficult, and because inevitably we will sin and hurt one another, as we look forward to future salvation, when all of that will be eradicated, all of our tendencies towards sin, and we will live as children of the royal king forever and ever, we endure together. I need you, and you need me. We need each other, bringing our different gifts to bear on one another so that we might endure together. That's why you can't give up on each other. And that's why you've got to be engaged. You can't be a part-time soldier. You can't show up for a skirmish here or there with your gun not cleaned and no ammo in the cartridges. You've got to be ready to go at all times. And it's difficult Some of you are weary today. Some of us are not. The strong ones bear up the weary, and then that gets flipped. Some of you are wise. Some of you are not as wise as you should be. Some of you are strong. Some of you are weak. Some of you are further ahead. Some are not. Some of you are better at certain things than your brother or sister, and what do you need if we're all going to endure to the end? To think not only of your own pursuits, your own race, but the race of your partner. Whitney and I ran our first really long race this past fall. And um, one of the best parts about it is we did it together. When we reached about mile 17, we ran a marathon. When we reached about mile 17 of our marathon, we both just wanted to totally quit. We had this long sort of uphill part of our marathon. And uh, we had trained really hard. But when we got there to that point, it really kicked our butts. And uh, if she hadn't been with me, I don't know if I would have made it. 
But she was, and we kind of pushed each other. And like mile 26, she all of a sudden found this new burst of energy, and I wanted to like totally trip her and say, just stop. Let's just kind of crawl to the end. But she started taking off because the marathon photo is at the end, and you don't want to end because they click your picture like six times and then send you, you know, copies of it. You don't want to go through the finish line like, you know, dragging and puking and all that kind of stuff. You want to try to make it to the end. And so, so you know, she pushed me. She helped me. We run this race together as we look forward to the hope of our call. There's one Jesus. He's the Savior of us all. There's one faith, one confession. At the end of the day, what do we have? We have one confession. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation. It's been given to us by grace, and we receive it by faith. And, of course, one baptism. It's the reason we take baptism so seriously. We see it as a physical reminder that we have been united to the person who lived and died for us and was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit under the sovereign providence of the Father. This Father who is of all, over all, through all, and in all. So, my brothers and sisters, the identity of the church is that we are a united people. We're not united because we're alike. In fact, God does not put like with like. We are united because Jesus has brought us to Himself through the Spirit, and we live under the sovereign care and for the glory of our Father. So, give beauty through the way you live together to what the body of Christ is to look like. Unite in our differences, bearing with one another in humility and gentleness and patience, eagerly, actively, collectively pursuing this unity. We're also identified by what it is that we say that we believe. We believe in God and we believe in His good news. This life seems long. I know that. Sometimes, frankly, interminable. But our Father is with us. He has proven His love for us by giving us His Son. He ministers to us daily through His Spirit, and He's given us one another. And while this life lasts, may we live together in harmony, under His care, holding fast to our confession of hope. And because this is our identity, the way we live together and what it is that we say that we believe, this has an outward expression. People are watching. So as you live together with the identity of a unified people, this gives beauty to your testimony as a follower of Jesus. As you proclaim with, with belief, humble belief, but, but firm belief nonetheless that you believe these things, gives testimony to, to the reality of the hope that we find in God. So this is not only for us, this is also for a world that we are to go toward. So take this good news. Beautify it through the way you live with one another and proclaim it to those who desperately need it. This firm foundational faith that the world needs, hold fast and proclaim. So, brothers and sisters, the identity of the church is wrapped up in how we live and what we believe. That's for us and that's for the world. May God be glorified in both. Let's pray.